Welcome back to the Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast with Tyler and Nate. This is the final episode featuring the main story of Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. We went to outer space, we confronted Zanza, and slew him with an all-new Super Monado made of blue crystal. We're going to get on with the epilogue in a moment here, but now feels like a good time to say, if you've come this far with us on our Xenoblade Chronicles journey, Nate and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast series. Thank you for being part of the community. We hope you found something enjoyable and interesting in it, and we hope you continue hanging out with us as Nate and I explore other great games to cover. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. All right, let's see what happens next. The next thing we see is Earth. We are floating above it. There's a green light wafting over and around Shulk, and it's Alvis, this green glimmer. And he says, this is my home. And we see a space station in the distance. We hear a voice. It's Zanza's voice. But before he became a god, was Zanza an astronaut? I'm thinking to myself. We cut to the interior of a space station orbiting planet Earth. I'll interrupt you, Tyler, and just say, I love absolutely everything about this moment. Yes. I love the perceptions and norms of everything we've been experiencing, just being absolutely turned on its head. And I also love, I don't know, I might be out in the woods here, but uh, that glowing green light, uh, we've identified it as Alvis. Mm-hmm. looks a little bit like the shape of a cross, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not drawing a religious connection there. I'm drawing a connection to, this reminds me of the wave existence. Yes, in Xenogears, the wave existence, which they made contact with at the end of the game, which integrating with was the goal of the primary antagonist, Corellian, was a, was a glimmer of light. It was a extra-dimensional being trapped uh, in the... Fucking spoilers, by the way. Trapped into the Zohar modifier, which was providing the Zohar modifier power, which was then powering things like gears and lots of other stuff and the entire fucking plot. If we go back to Xenogears, we have this being, this, this green light being that empowered a device that had the power to change all of creation and reality if it was harnessed to its full potential. And now in this game, we have a very similar life force. And when he chooses to represent himself as a human in our reality, he's wearing a very Zohar-esque pendant around his neck. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. You'll go online and you'll, you'll hear lots of people saying, it's just for fun, there aren't any real connections. But again, for me, this is the shit I love. I love this first glimmer I got of the spaceship. I don't know if my jaw actually dropped, but my like my spirit jaw <laughs> dropped in that moment. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hell yes. We're going here. We're doing this right now. Yeah, this is a very Xeno, um, Xeno franchise moment. This reality twisting, not sure what's going on, psychoanalytical moment and here we are we're probably not watching this in real time looking back this is probably a vision that alvis is expressing to us but what it is is the creation of the world of xeno blade we go into the space station the space station is a name oh, do i have it do I have written down i have a very generic title for it but i don't have a name i think it is the generic title why don't you lay it on me phase transition experiment facility oh that's not what i looked up but that's probably it too i'm looking at first low 
Orbit Station. All the same, that might be the name of the station and Nate, what you just described might be the name of the station too, but is more pointed in its purpose. We're going right in here. So we hear Zanz's voice, the camera cuts into the space station itself. We're in a control room. Um, there's a big glass panel pointed out into the cosmos, and there are technicians and lab coats leaning over consoles. One of them is a young, blonde male with shoulder-length hair. It's Zanza, a human Zanza, a non-god Zanza. He's a technician, a scientist, a researcher in this um, low-orbit facility. A female voice tells him to stop. The results have not yet been confirmed. It's too dangerous. This person person is a woman and looks an awful lot like Lady Maneth does. This is Lady Maneth in human form. Not even homforn. <laughs> We're going to use the word correctly, in human form. In my head, I'm going, this is looking an awful like a scene out of Xenosaga, not that I've played it. Zanza throws Maneth off of him because she's she's like physically like grappling him, stopping him from doing whatever he's about to do. And free of her, he continues to do what he's doing. He says, we are about to give birth to another universe. Only a god could perform such a miracle. But today, mankind moves one step further the divine. We are about to bear witness to the birth of a universe. Once, only a god could perform such a miracle. But today, mankind moves one step closer to the divine. He pushes a button and a blue ball of energy fires from the space station into the cosmos. It encircles planet Earth, leaving a yellow trail behind it. The planet shimmers and glows white as it washes with blue energy and then explodes with divine light, which passes over uh, Shulk and Immaterial Alvis, which we're watching at a distance, still in outer space. Alvis contextualizes this moment and says, it was simple curiosity of one man who destroyed the universe and created a new one. We're back on the Xenoblade world now, and we watch two titans rise out of the oceans and it happens super fast like these guys emerge climb up to their knees and stand and go to a standing position in not even five seconds you think a titan moves a little slower than that but hey maybe they just got born they've got extra feeling extra limber today so we've got we've got two titans from two base station staff members but we saw that room filled with a lot of people. Mm. Are there more space station titans milling about the world or was it just her having her hands on him, him touching the button, that they're the only ones that really made it through the, what I'm going to assume is the phase transition? Yes. Right? Yeah, there there could be. I mean, I Zanza and Maneth are very defined by their convictions over Gnosticism and agnosticism. And so I wonder if they felt a particular way about what a new universe might look like. That'll depend on whether or not they're part of the pantheon or not, so to speak. And it's interesting that like one person chose to represent themselves as like a biological entity. And the other one was like, I totally want to be a, a big ass machine, you know? And it's like, yeah, if there's more staff members, is there one out there that's like, what else is there even, you know, do I want to be a giant water giant, you know, or like, uh -huh. are there other types than just bio or machine? That's a good question. It makes you wonder what's going on in Maynard's head that she wants a mechanical world. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I have to say is Elvis says he destroyed the universe. Alvis continues to clarify what's going on here. He says, Zanza and Maneth were lonely, so they created life in their image. Maneth's life in her image is a fucking machine world. 
That's a head scratcher, but that's what Alvis just said. As the world advanced to each stage, it was inherited by different generations of life forms, but awareness of Zanza faded, and Zanza feared this. In order to escape annihilation, he created the system of creation of and destruction via Telethia wiping out life on repeat. Alvis then underscores that he did long for friendship, and then we witness the Titans fighting for the first time, which brings us back to the beginning of the first cutscene of the entire game. Alvis is still speaking. It might have been possible for both futures to coexist, but... By Shulk defeating them, it eliminated that possibility. Finally, Shulk asks Alvis, so what are you anyways? For like the third time. <laughs> Alvis, what are you? His response is, I'm a computer, bro, but you don't understand what those are. But I think there are computers, so that's not an entirely true statement. Shulk has some experience with machinery because he talked to fucking AIs and Mechanists that gave him quests, so... Alvis is being a little demeaning in this moment, I feel like. But um, he says that he was the uh, main computer system for the phase transition experiment facility. And this is where one of my questions comes in. Oh, we didn't mention the, the Zanza guy in, in real life outside Earth. His name was Klaus. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Yes. So if Klaus destroyed a universe and created a new one wouldn't he have destroyed a the reality in which alvis the computer system existed mm. alvis somehow moved through that transition with the two of them here's my theory it's like alvis is the computer system for this phasing facility right mm -hmm. i'm gonna go with my theory that a wave existence like power is what was the heart of the facility and on which these capabilities of them pressing the button were rooted in right because that that green lightness and just like the wave existence was like a silent personalityless entity in xenogears that Krellian eventually imprinted himself upon and like gave a voice to in a certain way i feel like the alvis we're talking to now may have been a computer at one point but that AI of the computer was imprinted onto that entity, and that's how we made it through the transition. So it's like, yeah, we might just be talking to a computer, but physically, where would that computer be if the universe was destroyed? I think that AI just got cycled into what the greater existence is. Yeah. Because Alvis is sitting there saying, like, I'm the beginning and the end. I am the Monado etc it's like that sounds a little bit loftier than hey i'm a really cool computer you know yeah yeah i he's probably just woven into the fabric of every proton and of this new reality right precisely man there's a god for you exactly a real god um but able to bring the spirits of people who push buttons at the facility uh with it become demigods anyways alvis says this world has stagnated what is your wish now um, when he says this, um, Bionis is kind of crumbling, and we can infer that with Zanza God being dead, a world that needs a god doesn't have one anymore, and so this reality is decaying. Alvis is telling us this, and so now it's time to make the choice, like the, the all caps triple underscore choice. Shulk 
says, well, what are you saying? Am I a god? Well, yeah, yeah, you're, you are a god now. You can govern as one in the new reality. Or what do you want? Like, what kind of what kind of god do you want to be in the new world that I will create for you? Just say the word and I'll make it happen. There is a point where everybody chimes in and kind of says that life is just about enjoying the surprises and involving. And nobody really talks about getting cancer or like your spouse leaving you or anything like that. It's, it's all good stuff. And so they don't want to have any any control over anything they just want to embrace the chaos as regular ass people the two monados that zanza wielded are floating in the air along with alvis's green light um he says the shulk that he recreated everyone from shulk's consciousness so the legitimate members of the party were all just apparently disintegrated into nothingness at the end of that battle and these are just echoes of what Shulk knew of them. And so if his perspective of them was a little warped, if there were secrets kept from him, untold emotions, that all ceases to be a part of who they are now because uh, they all exist for Shulk's benefit. They were forged out of his perception of them. Mm, yeah, you're right. Shulk says that he wishes for a world with no gods and he chucks his Monado into the other two and maybe into Alvis as well. I won't decide. The future should be decided by each and every person in the world. And so, what I know, what we wish for is a world with no gods. We cut back to the sea. We see light erupt from Bionis' head. Its body snaps and convulses upright. Colony 6 is definitely completely fucking destroyed again. And all of my hours wasted. As we zoom out, we see golden cracks in the sky. We continue to zoom out and pass through a crack. What we're seeing is the Xenoblade world, which was hollow inside a planet. Or maybe this is just the reality reconstruction process happening. It explodes in purple and blue energy, radiates out to the cosmos, and begins to swirl like a galaxy. And eventually it does become a galaxy among several. And all goes quiet again. We return to a camera leisurely strolling through a colony-esque town yeah you know i spotted it as colony nine right away i recognized that spire kind of in the center there it's a first person perspective of someone walking down a major thoroughfare it's a very slice of life shot here there's homs machina hyentias no ponds living together colonel waluigi is here yeah waluigi yelling at someone for their insolence and tells them to do a circuit around Colony 9 by doing leap squats. Whatever this Colony 9 militiaman did, he really fucked up. Because <laughs> that sounds like that sucks. Another symptom of recreating everything from Shulk's perception, if he was a good family man to his wife and children, potentially outside of his role as Colonel, that all ceases to exist because the only time Shulk witnessed his existence was him screaming and bitching and abusing soldiers. So that now that's a hundred percent who he is all the time. Now that you mention it, now that we keep circling back to this reality completely organized around Chalk's perception. Do you think that um, Alvis played a hand in recontextualizing everybody based on being the fabric of everything and kind of know like knowing to quite a certain degree that for example how waluigi is at home with his wife that would be the preferable option yeah 
If he hadn't said that dialogue of, I recreated everybody from your consciousness, Shulk, that is the lesser of two options of, hey, I'm the arbiter of all reality. I was here at the beginning. I will be here at the end. I see everything. And I've just been like a, a silent passenger waiting for somebody to show up and take the reins. Because I see everything, I was able to reconstitute people in their complete selves as individuals. That would be a better way to frame that one for the sake of us and our catharsis. Uh -huh. I wonder if we could have a look at the Japanese translation and see what it is directly, because there's a chance that uh, Takahashi is just running circles around a, a poor, <laughs> um, confused localization team who's just trying to get it done. And as we're getting into this reality bending epilogue here, I just kind of wonder if there's more to it here, because it is, I mean, with a story this grand, it's going to be really, really hard to tie everything off into a bow. I mean, everything from the conversation we're having about recreating reality based on Shulk's impressions of things to, I, I don't know, when when Maineth died and, and the Fiora daggers had to come together and become one because later on it would be Zanza has to have both Monados, one in each hand. They've got to reconcile some of this somehow, and I don't, I'm not expecting it to be very smooth. As, um, video game podcasters and reviewers and game likers like we want it all to be tied up in a nice little bow but it just doesn't happen because having the payoff equal the the setup is challenging and you want it to happen for a good narrative enjoyment you know experience for yourself but with the story of this grandiose it's going to break down in some places and yeah and it's definitely one of those like brain off moments like uh in star trek you just have to stop thinking about it when you realize that every time they use a teleporter they are murdering themselves and recreating new copies based on all of their information mm -hmm. at least that's the way it was presented to me as a non-star trek aficionado but uh, somebody told me that and I was like, that's kind of horrifying and like changes your perception of the entire series. But as somebody who enjoys it, you just got to turn your brain off and say, eh, what are you going to do? It's funny you mentioned that because I have a friend, an IRL friend, who he lives here in Eau Claire, who wrote an article for Cracked.com about the implicit horrors you take for granted in the Star Trek universe. And that was one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, as a writer, I would have to change that because <laughs> it would just, it, if I was creating that universe and like being invested in those characters there's just something like nails on a chalkboard for me of that being an element of my science fiction world i don't know how to explain it it's just it's weird as a writer to deal with those thoughts this first person perspective that we're experiencing walks into a conversation with between Atheron, vinea mikol and dunbin talking about living in harmony and that this is what egil would have wanted we hear fiora's voice it's her first-person perspective. She asks, have we seen Shulk? And they don't know where he's gone. First-person Fiora finds Melia looking down on the colony from a rocky cliff. Fiora asks Melia, what are you looking at? And she says, nothing. I'm just thinking about the future. And um, in this moment, I catch on to what's going on. And I wondered if we were doing this first-person perspective because she has her original Hom body back. And I'm going to be correct in a hot second here. Anyways, Fiora thanks her for everything. We quickly wipe away to a grassy pier overlooking a lake. Ryan is reeling in a great big fish while Ricky encourages him and Juju and Sharla are watching. Ryan overcommits to his reel and all but Sharla are thrown into the water and they have this cartoony moment. This is just another example of how life is kind of, how casual everyday life is kind of returned to Colony 9 here. Ryan makes a funny comment about why is the water so salty? 
um, which makes you think that there isn't salt water in the original Xenoblade world. And I just wonder why that detail had to come up, you know? There could be in Fallen Arm if there was never an opportunity for Ryan to be submerged in Fallen Arm. It could be that the larger sea is obviously salt water, like our oceans are, mm-hmm. and that all the water on Biotis isn't. So they might be alluding to the fact that, yeah, this is a, a colony location, and we see Biotis parts strewn about the greater horizon as we witness this area. But um, I think it's kind of alluding to the fact that like they are not on a giant Titan anymore. They are at sea level. This was kind of the decision Bulk made was to, with no gods, that means kind of dragging all of mankind down to the sea level, to live it out at ground level with the rest of planet itself, mm-hmm. instead of resting on the backs of titans. This cartoony moment ends with Ryan reminding Ricky of his children and saying that he forgot that he owes them like 14 fish. And, and the following animation is just great. Ricky tackles Ryan with his ears, ear first, tackling Ryan, and they both go back in the drink again. It's, it's this joyful moment between these two guys that, us, that used to you know, rub each other pretty raw, but now they're, now they're goofing off. Anyways, way off to the side of the pier is Shulk. Clever camera angles show us that Her body is back, and we kind of pull out of her first-person perspective. She says the breeze feels so good, which I think is a clue that, um, before we do the reveal, is a clue that maybe in her mechanical body she wouldn't feel something like the breeze and that it felt so good. Her hair is cut really short, and they look like brother and sister. I thought that was kind of weird. Yeah, it's still the the short cut from her McConnus body. Mm -hmm. Maybe even shorter. I thought it was shorter. Yeah. Yeah. She wants to know. She asks Shalt how should she do her hair whether she likes it this way or the other way and shulk answers with either way is nice and i'll just say that never works dude you need to pick one so that the girl can feel excited that she's moving towards a concrete goal of pleasing her man this is a callback to the conversation about the food she cooked him back in chapter one where she asks him an honest question and he gives her a middling answer that doesn't actually reveal how he feels about the question and he's doing it again here and she she chastises him and he relents he does say i think she i think he says it looks okay and shulk just kind of sucks at flirting it's kind of the same thing as like uh alvis asking him like do you want to be a god do you not want to be a god and shulk's just like i i don't know i just i just want to go touch machines and make some gadgets like leave me alone no no he's got a very pointed answer to the most important question that can ever be asked in that reality but when it comes to (laughs) come to his pseudo girlfriend's hair length he's uh it's fine it's you have a hair length hair is good once that awkward moment passes Yura asks shulk what's the future going to be like because that's kind of the the great unknown we have released ourselves from gods it's all up to ourselves now what's going to happen next and uh shulk says well there's going to be ups and downs and um honestly we rehearse the same anything as possible lines that we've heard all along we can do anything including cut our own hair like the guy we like shulk says the new world is boundless home to many forms of life i can see it all and in this world um all life will walk towards the future hand in hand there is a vision of alvis himself shulk's eyes shine with vision energy or the light of creation or at least that's my note and then he says i hope to meet them all the people of this endless world we will i know it and that's kind of the end here and i'm asking myself like what you you want to meet every you want to nate do you want to meet every person in the world no but we're in a weird situation here in him like 
recreating this world? Did he recreate Earth? And now it's like, hey, all those continents and peoples and whatever that were murdered by Klaus, like we can actually go see them and meet them now. It's not just Klaus lands and Maneth lands and all that. Like uh, it's kind of left wide open. And obviously there are Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and 3 with wacky anime shit. So we kind of have the answer to that. And you have also dipped your toes into uh, Future Connected as well. So, oh yeah, I'm done with it. But I haven't. So um, I'm still wondering where it's all going to go. Yeah. Yeah. The final shot of the game has the camera zooming out to show the colony at large. Now, we're at like a shoreline with a pier over to the side, and there are grassy structures in the distance. When we're zooming out here, those grassy structures reveal to be the horn on Bionis's head. Bionis is almost entirely underwater, and this new colony is on a landmass nearby. Credits. Credits roll. Credits, Nate. Credits, credits, credits. All of my colony sixing was for nothing, Tyler. <laughs> Dude, you got some nice sunglasses. Given the Xenosaga scene that we had with the space station, it makes me wonder how the worlds of Xenoblade 2 and 3's lore relate to Hamza's and Ham Maneth's universe experiment. Do you think they circle back to that? I've heard through not seeking out any of this, accidentally stumbling upon discussions of people, that there is a direct connection to the games. They're loose. They aren't like, isn't like Shulk shows up and is like, hey guys, I'm checking out new landmasses. Like it's not overt, but they're loose connections, but there are connections to where the entire series is cohesive, supposedly. Sure. They're probably about as loose as they are here in Xenoblade 1. Now, once the game's over, loading your save file has two options, continue playing or New Game Plus. New Game Plus preserves items, levels, arts, party affinity, money, achievements, but not key items, achievement trials, community affinity chart, and quests. So the game says that when playing again, try developing relationships with different characters to complete quests that will lead to alternative futures. What does this mean? What alternative futures? Also, Shulk has the true Monado in subsequent playthroughs what they mean is that woman that is kind of grifting her boyfriend for more money instead of smoothing things over between the two of them you can just tell them oh. you can tell them all right and she can be like you can break them up so that that's the sure. that's the alternate future they promise you is boyfriend drama sure the one or the other quests yeah got it uh, new title screen as well. The gang is relaxing on that pier looking over towards the drowned Bionis. It's a nice touch. Indeed. Mm -hmm. 145 hours, Nate. How about you? Yeah, I think I'm 155. Some of those are me just idling while doing other things. Yeah. Bear in mind, we like we take notes while we're playing. So like, yeah, cut a quarter of that or even a th I don't even know, maybe even a third. Yeah. Yeah. What is your uh, final assessment and rating for this video game, Tyler? Sure. Okay. So I would recommend this game. It is a good, it's a good JRPG. If you really like the melodrama, you can, you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. Um, the science fiction is pretty neat. The environments are, are as much a main character as Shulk is. That's, that's the highlight. And I feel like they know that, um, in their marketing and how, how they're portrayed in other, how the franchise is portrayed in other media, like, you know, the, the Xenoblade level in, Smash Brothers Ultimate is, you know, Gower Plains for good reason. The face mechons are cool. That whole face mechon intrigue that we were embroiled in for the first two thirds of the game, it seems like, um, that was all pretty neat. If you like questioning, there's a lot of it for you. And you can play dress up too, because I know people like the, I forget what the genre is called, but they like the, you know, clothing and, you know, transmogging their, their heroes too. And so if you're appealed to that sort of stuff, um, 
this game has a lot of it for you as well, including bathing suits with leggy women. So, you know, get a lot of that if you like it. I mean, I don't have a rating, you know, system in mind, but I'd say, yeah, it was it was good. It doesn't um, measure up to Xeno Gears, I guess I would say, in terms of what I want out of a Xeno franchise game. But it's a successful series. It's going over really well. Oh, my goodness, there's a Xenoblade 3 that came out earlier this year, and it's popping off in, in terms of sales and, and, uh, to, and reviews as well. So um, they've got a good thing here. And the definitive edition that we played um, is good. It, I didn't play the original but I can, uh, in the media that I've experienced researching this game over the last year, we've been playing this game for a fucking year, Nate. Oh my God. I've gotten a sense of like what the differences are between the main uh, version and the first version and the, and the definitive edition. And they did a good job with this, um, with this remaster basically. Right. Um, so pretty pleased with all of that. It's not a remaster, scratch that. But yeah. Um, good game spectacular first game to do for our season one very appropriate given our joint history in the xeno series so um yeah i don't know what else can i say loved it music is spectacular too holy smokes dig the music very very much tell me how you felt about this game would you recommend it how would you rate it what were your biggest takeaways i would very much recommend this game especially if you have a switch it's got content for kind of that on the go switchness of just slamming outside quests and running around the world grinding doing chores and the chores can be pretty fun like i complain about them throughout the episodes but they're good and then it's got those big cinematic moments for when you're plugged into your tv and you're zoned in and you're living that immersive gamer life so i feel like it's a good fit on the switch even more so than the wii i can't imagine fumbling around with the Wii mode. I hope to God that anybody who played it on that, it supports like the classic mode. But yeah, seeing the difference between what I've witnessed of the original Wii game and this, like I have nothing but praise for what they did with a definitive edition. Seems like everything just looks better, operates cleaner, is just like it brings it up to the level of feeling like a completely modern game in every respect. There wasn't really any rough edges where I was like, ugh, you know, it felt brand new for everything they they did to update the game as far as uh gameplay i was consistently having a great time except for at the end where i was over leveled and that was kind of my mistake but also kind of the games but for the majority of the game i found the combat system and everything mostly compelling at certain points in like i'd say the first third of the game it might have been too easy to where i didn't really need to think about gems or gear or anything but kind of at that halfway point around when you start rounding out by honest, you start entering into that zone where you need to start thinking about it and it gets really, really fun. I really enjoyed the story. I had a great time with the characters. I think the characters carry the lower parts of the stories because they're very likable and you feel invested in them. And they most of them have their their own little personal motivations you can connect to for the most part, barring a couple of them. Like we always, we mentioned how wooden Malia felt to us throughout the entire game, but I really love the characters. And I thought that was kind of the highlight of the game's story and events. As far as what you said of, you know, kind of rising to that level of being, whether it's better than Xenogears or not, I found this game to be much more playable than Xenogears. I found myself experiencing less like awkward roadblocks or awkward combat moments or just like things where you didn't put the right thing on a giant mech and you're just 
feeling cock blocked for an hour and a half. So this game provided me less uh, moments of frustration than Xenogears. But what Xenogears delivered is, um, you know, the pure joy I expressed from the kind of final moments of this last chapter here. I feel like Xenogears delivers those highs throughout the entire game. Whereas this game has them in kind of like key moments. We, we, I'd say we probably got like two or three real big stunning reveals in this game. Whereas like Xenogears, uh, the original, the pedigree on which this is all built, that game delivered like shocking moments and twists left and right, like constantly. So I was expecting a little bit more of that. And I found this game to be a little bit more tame than what I envisioned, but Still pretty stellar, still pretty great. Mm-hmm. I would recommend it. Play it if you like action RPGs. Can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah, play it. It's a good game. And thus we have arrived. And thus we have arrived. Nearly the end of our journey. Yeah, um, Future Connected. Um, let's not spend too much time on this because we've been here for quite a while. Have you started it yet? No, I haven't. So we're going to do another episode featuring Future Connected, which is um, an additional chapter that is only available in the definitive edition version of this game. And then we're going to move along to season two of Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast. And... And now is about as good a time as any to talk about what season two is going to look like. Nate, do you want to take it away? I want to play a game with potions, Tyler. (laughs) I want to play a game where I can have 1,000 potions. Can you give that to me? Uh, Yeah, but I don't think a vending machine is going to carry a thousand potions. Oh. You probably have to um, spend your gill on several vending machines. Well, I know once I hop off the train, if you walk to the guard that was dispatched next to it, click on them twice, you'll at least get two of them right there. Well, that's two more than you didn't have before. We're going to do the Final Fantasy VII remake for season two of the podcast. Wait, no, I... I told you I wanted to play Final Fantasy VII. No, I thought, I thought you, you said Final Fantasy VII Remake, right? No. Final Fantasy VII is my favorite game ever, and I want to do that for Season 2. Hmm. Well, here's an idea. How about we play both of those games, Final Fantasy VII Remake and the original, at the same time and do a fun compare and contrast season? with both all right i guess i can do that i um i do have two monitors now at my desk so i will i'll learn how to play with my feet and i'll play one game on one monitor with my hands the other game on the other monitor with my feet you're gonna play both at the same time yes spectacular brilliant you stream that okay i'll see if i can cross the streams and get it on screen we're doing a little skit here so the plan is final fantasy 7 remake and the final fantasy 7 uh original um but for the original we're just going to play up to the events of the remake if you already know how it's the remake sort of goes is they play all the way up to the end of um midgar which is roughly the first six or eight hours of the original and so um there's 17 chapters there probably there will probably be 17 episodes there's also an expansion featuring Yuffie in the remake as well, and we're probably going to play that as well in the same sort of sense that we're also playing the future connected chapter or Xenoblade Chronicles as well. We like to do other content on the site as well, and so you can expect us to you know, chase other sort of uh, white rabbits in our gaming endeavors, and so look forward to other content in addition to the Final Fantasy VII stuff as well. We just can't help ourselves. We can't just do the main flagship series. We, we just... We have to do the travelogs. We have to do the other reviews and things like that. So 
Um, look forward to all of that content and more. Nate's gonna be doing more streaming. We're gonna be more active on YouTube and there's just gonna be a lot more of us uh, in the future. I'm um, speaking of like, I suppose house cleaning things as well. Um, the YouTube presence is Gunblade guys because that's kind of like the brand that we that Nate and I share. And Hero with a Thousand Potions is within that brand. And so don't get confused when we direct you to things that say Gunblade guys, it's still us. It's just that Hero with a Thousand Potions is one of the products within the Gunblade guys uh, brand. So if you start seeing more Gunblade guys relevance in the future, that's, that's kind of why. We're expanding, we're growing, and we want to do more than just the podcast. So look forward to lots of that in the future. Think about it this way. I'll make it real easy here. Hero with a Thousand Potions is inspired by this idea of analyzing and breaking down things and um, really getting to how a game touched us and made us think. And we don't want to have to do that all the time. I might just want to play Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider doesn't really make me think. But hey, we might toss it out there. We might share it with you guys. We might enjoy uh, just connecting with you on a simpler level. And so really, we we tried to think of a brand that encapsulated all of the creative collaboration that is uh, Tyler and I and our friendship. And uh, it really kind of came down to that moment where we both realized we were dorky Final Fantasy VIII fans. That about wraps up this episode. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions, recorded on December 6th and 7th, 2022. We have an email, hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com. Do we have a Gunblade Guys email now, too? Yeah, it's just gunbladeguys at gmail.com. That's 1000 Gunblade Guys. We're also on Discord with a link you can access from our podcast descriptions paragraph. And uh, look forward to more from us. My name is Tyler. And I deleted all of our Twitter accounts. And we will see you in Midgar after the Bayana Stroller. Spoilers. <laughs>
you know, when you're editing this, it might not mm-hmm. be as helpful as I thought it was. So you could just cut it. But um, I'll come up with a script for like creating those clear lines because for an established brand like Resonant Arc and then having the state of the art podcast, it works for them because they started with those crisp, clear lines and we kind of started backwards of we started our podcast and then we realized we want to do more than just podcasting, you know, so yeah we're kind of working backwards you know a little bit yeah it's fine i mean most things like this is just life like things don't grow smoothly things grow in awkward lumps and we are we're we're well in line with that if it's i mean it's 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 better if it's smooth but most of the time it's not and that's just how it's going to be i'm having fun